Hey, welcome to TBT's podcast. I'm Dan Friel. On this edition, we're going to hear from Michael Sweetney of City of Gods. Michael's just an incredibly nice guy and extremely forthcoming about his own struggles following the death of his father shortly after he was drafted by the New York Knicks in the first round. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Hopefully, you'll appreciate his candor as much as I do. Remember that you can subscribe to TBT's podcast on iTunes, and if you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating and a review. It'll help spread the word. Thanks. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, and you? I'm doing great. Where are you right now? Um, actually, I'm in um, home in Fort Washington, Maryland, so I'm, I'm, I'm at home right now. And we're actually recording this, I think, early afternoon, your time, but you were at practice this morning with City of Gods? Uh, yeah, we were supposed to have practice uh, this morning at, um, in Laurel, and uh, a few guys, you know, most of the guys are still gone overseas, but a few guys are still here working out and getting ready. Who's back working with out uh, right now? Uh, right now, we have Demar Johnson, uh, Lasan Kumar, uh, David Hawkins is in town, and I'm forgetting one more person, uh, Xavier Salas. What is uh, and when is Pops going to show up and start working out with you guys? Um, Pops is obviously he's working for the uh, NBA Players Association, so um, you know, he's in and out, you know, from New York, DC, you know, the Chicago pre-draft camp, so he's pretty much all over, but uh. Pops is one of those guys that no matter where he's is, he's, he's going to get his work in. So uh, Pops is definitely probably the most ready person on the team. That sounds naturally great. just like that. And we were talking, <laughs> we were talking before we started recording, Michael. But you're, you sounds like you're pretty excited about getting back back on uh, the court with these guys this summer. Oh yeah, most definitely. Um, it was one of those things. Um, even though we came up short as far as winning the money part, but I think you know the bond that you know we built and um, the chemistry that we had. We we had a lot of fun. You know, just the times in the hotel. You know, just times just in the airport together, we just had a, a great bond. Most of those guys, we either play against each other or watch each other growing up. So it was one of those things to actually play on the same team. It was just a lot of fun. So I think everybody's excited to come back this year. How did that team come together? I know Joe, Joe Connolly has trained a lot of you guys before, but what was the, what was that, that like in 2015, like that initial conversation? Um, Joe Connolly just came up with the idea that, um, him and LaFonse Johnson are GM. I had the idea about putting the team in a tournament and, um, they kind of went from there. You know, it's kind of one of those things that, hey, would you want to run? And this is who we're interested in. And, um, that's what happened. <laughs> that's pretty much how it came up. I don't think none of the players pretty much had any, you know, input. They already kind of had a, had their mind made up and every player that they named that they were going to put on the team, every guy was like, yeah, it's a no brainer. So it's one of those things. It was like an instant. Instead, um, you know, love reaction, I'll say. But were you, I know that you said there was some, some past history there in terms of playing on different teams and maybe knowing each other and stuff, but did you all practice together or, you know, work out together before this as a group? Um, yeah, about two weeks, uh, about two and a half weeks before the TBT last year. Um, we got together and we just, you know, practiced, play five on five, you know, get to know each other a little bit. You know, as far as playing together, we knew each other already, but playing together is a whole different ballgame for us. What was the, was there anyone that surprised you in terms of maybe you hadn't seen them or didn't realize how good they were? Um, I think the the one is uh, Omar Strong. You know, he's one of those guys that a lot of people didn't really know, and um, he came in a gym. Uh, it's funny, it's funny story about Omar Strong. He came in a gym about ten minutes late for practice. Um, you know, his beard was everywhere, hair everywhere. Um, just had, had his shoes and flip-flops on, little short guys. We were like, man, everybody was like, you know, who is this guy right here? And next thing you know, um, he just didn't stretch it, none just came out there and hit like seven threes back to back. 
And that was everybody's first time meeting him and didn't know nothing about him. He was walking in the gym and just like had seven threes back to back. This is no lie. And everybody, whoop, okay, there's a respect back. So everybody like from there on respected him. And um, it was it was, a good, it was a funny experience, a funny story though. Do you think he did that on purpose? Just got kind of make a name for himself off the bat? Uh, I have to this day we do not know, but I just think it was one of those things. Like, yeah, we ju- we looked at him and we judged. And everybody was like, oh man, here is this guy. The next thing you know, it was like, whoop, answer respect. So was, you know, who knows? But um, you know, he's a great kid. Um, he has a bright future. He's still young, so um, uh, he's a bright future. One of the things that's interesting this year is you guys have a couple of changes to the roster from what this squad was last year, the semifinal team. And one of the big additions, um, you know, aside from James White, obviously, is uh, is Chris Wright from Georgetown. Uh, you were on the water. How well do you know Chris? Were you, were you the guy in charge of recruiting? Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't play Chris. Uh, I didn't. I never played with him at Georgetown, but I, you know, watched him play. You know, pretty much his whole Georgetown career. Um, Excellent guard. And like I say, when it comes to, you know, putting the guys on the team, that's Joe Conley and, um, Lafonte Johnson. We kind of, you know, he kind of let us know, Hey, this is what I'm interested in. And same situation is like a no brainer. And, um, Chris Wright is a, you know, a great point guard, uh, runs the show, score, plays good defense. Um, I think he's to be a great addition to our team. When you, um, when you were kind of going through the process last year, and I think particularly as the city of gods ended up advancing to the semifinals, you ended up getting a, quite a bit of media attention yourself. And, um, you know, for obvious reasons, obviously, having been a first-round pick, you were back in New York playing with the Knicks. And there was an article in the New York Post um, that I thought was really um, – I just thought it was, your candor was incredible and in what you were talking about because a lot of people don't really talk about those things. But you mentioned that – I read you the quote. It says, I don't think I was honest back then, but I'm now open to be able to say that everything that happened was my fault and I own up to it. I was in a bad depression, didn't eat right or work out enough, and I ate myself out of the league. Do you still feel like that? And are those words that, that you think about a lot? Um, at that time, yes, I do feel like, you know, I felt I felt myself, uh felt my family, I felt, you know, people the Knicks organization, a lot of people that had faith in me because, you know, when my dad passed away I went into a really, really deep depression and at the time I was scared to really talk about it because, you know, I didn't want people to think I was crazy, you know, it was just one of those things where you know, with whether it's an athlete or, you know, professional singer, actor, whatever it is, when you're on camera in front of the audience, you know, you're taught to be, you know, happy and, you know, everything happy go lucky. So it's one of those things where I kind of had to camouflage and by me doing that, it ended up me costing me my NBA career. Do you, well, for, let's start kind of at the beginning. I mean, how close was your dad? Obviously, must have been very close to you growing up, but how important of a figure was he to you? What kind of things was he imparting to you as you were growing up? Um, I'll just say very important. Um, just, you know, a great father figure. Um, he introduced me to the game of basketball. Um, he didn't like, I, I didn't like it at first, but he told me that he saw something in me that I didn't see myself at nine years old. I'm like, okay, but, um, never missed a practice, never missed a game. And it's one of those things when I was young, I didn't understand it. Now that I'm older, I'm like, wow, like this guy believed in me more than I believe in myself. And he was just always my rock, you know? So when that was taken from me, you know, I didn't know how to honestly handle it. You know, it was one of those things where, okay, my father's gone. What do I do? So it was a very tough situation for me. And so when, when he passed, that was, I think, shortly before the NBA draft. Is that timing right? No, uh, it was uh, after I got drafted. And uh, I was in rookie transition program right before training camp. Mm-hmm. And I got the phone call in, in a meeting in Twitch and transition camp. That my fa- I had to come home because my father just passed away. Yeah. And um, I came home. I buried my father. And then a few days later, I had to go to training camp. So I was, I went into training camp mentally, just not even there. 
Did you have a support system and up there with you? This is when you were with the Knicks, but did you have a support system up there with you? Family, friends, anybody that was kind of no, nah, I went. Helping you nah, I went by myself. I was I was by myself. I think that was one of the things where um, uh, you know, me, my wife, uh, well, my, she's my wife now, but she's my girlfriend at the time. Um, you know, she was working on the radio here in D.C., so it was pretty much you know tough for her to you know get in and out and be. But she, you know, she did the best she could, and uh, my mom was just home grieving on her own, so. It was one of those situations where, you know, I was just, you know, I, had, I was alone. Yeah. What about within the team? Was there anybody you could talk to at the time? Or um, no, anybody actually, no. reach out? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely could have been. People that I talked to, but like I said before, I camouflaged it. You know, when I was in practice and when I was, you know, in the locker rooms, I was smiling and acting normal. So they probably figured that I was okay. But, you know, behind closed doors, you know, I had suicidal thoughts and, wasn't right, you know. It's one of those things that's kind of scary when you think about it. Absolutely. Did you feel? Did you feel? I mean, obviously, you, you talked about the pressure, sort of, of anybody that's on camera to have that smile on their face. But did you feel, did you feel like maybe being in an athletic environment had anything to do with, um, you know, maybe the denial that you might have been in about the depression? Um, I think I think you know when you when I one thing now that I'm you know an advocate of mental health and depression, I think. No matter what environment you're in, it, it's people tend to camouflage it. You know, it could be somebody that's, you know, going to school every day. Well, a high school kid that goes to school every day. He's around his friends. He tries, you know, he probably is acting normal and doing things like that behind closed doors. You just never know what a person's going through. So yeah. I don't think any, I think any environment is just very, very, very possible. So it's not necessarily that you were in an NBA locker room. It could have been anywhere that that scenario would have arisen. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, most definitely anywhere. Cause, you know, like I said, uh, you know, like right now, I'm learning that most, you know, high school and middle school kids are the ones that deal with it most. And that's one of those things I was shocked when I did my research on it, but I was like, wow. So you just one of those things you just never know who goes through it. What did you end up doing? So it seems like this is at some point in adulthood, I would imagine once you maybe had kids yourself that you started kind of examining this. Is that the timing of that right? Um, I kind of actually before my, um, before my kids were born, that's when it kind of like, you know, when I got kind of got examined, I went to actually crazy. I went to uh, two counselors, um, and um, none of them worked. Uh, one of them was pretty much trying to for mental state for the, to help me mentally try to lose weight, which really didn't dissect my problem. I went to another counselor, and honestly, he was just collecting a check. It was like, okay, put the timer on, and so the time was up. All right, time was up. Kind of like get out of here. Yeah. So I never really got the right help until I actually um, went to Uruguay, South America, and I had somebody down there that spent pretty much every day, all day with me and pretty much, you know, helped me learn how to deal with it. Who, and I that? never, you know, a uh, guy named Juan. And so was he, this is a Uruguayan guy? Yeah. <laughs> he spoke with me, obviously he spoke English pretty well, but yeah, it was one of those things where we just, you know, spent, you know, spent most of the days with each other and just helped me get through that process. So you, you start to examine and, that stuff and then you said you started doing research and stuff. Are, and I'm curious, like, what, what have you kind of found out about what your um, experience was like and how how do you think you'd be able to help other people with this? Um, like I said, pretty much my experience, you know, I always, it, it, when people go through depression, it's always a trigger point. And my trigger point was losing my father and never grieving, never talking about it, never getting that proper help, you know, first and foremost. So as that went on, everything started building and building. You know, I had to deal with, uh, you know, the media, you know, trashing me, you know, and me not really defending myself. Things like that took its toll. Um, me feeling like a failure. Um, just, there's a lot of things that took its toll on me. And, um, that's what happened with the weight gain and, you know, the confidence loss. And next thing you know, I'm out the league. So 
you know, it got to a point where, you know, even my wife before my first son was born, I uh, left for three months, um, left my home, like th- actually Thanksgiving morning, packed up my car, left my house and um, slept in my car for three months in different parking lots. <laughs> and anywhere I can think of, I was just sleeping and um, just left my family. And my wife was like, enough is enough. So that's when, you know, I ended up going to Uruguay and getting the right help. So you were, wait, you were, you left the house and you were sleeping in your, your car? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but yeah, it's a true story. Uh, um, yeah, it was the Thanksgiving morning. I told my wife, I just, cause I felt like a failure. I felt like I didn't belong. I just, just, just wanted to be alone. And I literally packed up my truck and, um, yeah, was going from, um, parking lot to parking lot. This is, uh, you know, I honestly, I didn't, I didn't know that and I haven't read that anywhere either, Michael, but it's, it's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. When I, when I go around talking, I, like when I say right now, I'm going speaking about it. So I kind of share my whole story about it, about yeah. everything that I went through. And, um, you know, honestly, Joe Connolly is one of those, Joe was like one of my great, one of my best friends. A lot of people don't know that, but me and him are very, very close. And he was one of my, you know, greatest supporters. And, you know, he's a guy where, you know, him and his wife and his family took me in for a couple of weeks. That's how bad it was. So, you know, it's probably one of those things he never wants to take credit for, but he was one of those guys that had my back. You're doing way better now. And, and even just talking to you, it's obvious how far along in, the, in that recovery from that depression you are. Do you feel physically better, emotionally better, obviously? But what is it, what is it feel oh, like? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, I definitely feel a lot better, you know. I mean, of course, I'll be a lot to sit and say I wouldn't have moments where you know, I'm getting depressed or I get sad about certain things, but now I'm at a point where I don't let it, you know, get me to a point where I'm, you know, down about it and, you know, where the weight gain is happening and, you know, I'm going into deep, you know, I'm getting to it really deep. Now I kind of know what, you know, how to deal with it and how to handle it before it gets to a bad point. And so you said that you're going around giving talks and stuff. Are you, are you talking to kids? Who are you talking to about dealing with um, this Well, I spoke at a university in Maryland, uh, working on Georgetown University. I went to a couple of high schools, um, went to a church. Um, I've been, you know, I've been doing this for about a few months now, and um, the reaction has been amazing. You know, everywhere I go, I get so many people, <laughs> surprisingly kids mainly, they're telling me something they go through about them trying to commit suicide, have or want to. So it's one of those things where I'm just glad to be influenced and let you know, let people know that hey, you know, I was once a professional basketball player at the highest level, and I suffered from it. So don't feel embarrassed. It's one of those things you try to bring awareness to it. And, you know, the other part of this, too, and that I think makes you sort of a unique person to speak about this is, you know, that you, like you said, did reach the highest level, but you're also this big, physically imposing guy, you know? And I think to be talking about an injury that doesn't necessarily manifest itself physically, it's got to be really impactful on these on these people that you're talking to as well. Oh, yes, for sure, because, you know, it, it shocks a lot of people, you know, because you can say, you know, you look at me, you know, the big physique, but... um you know, no matter how big you are, how small you are, you know, you know, you definitely could have this issue. And it's definitely one of those things. And like I said, no matter how big or small, it, it will, you know, affect you or some people it can, you know, really damage your life or take your life. Right. And, and, and obviously, you know, the relationship you have with Joe is carrying itself over. And last summer it seemed like you were having a lot of fun out in the basketball court when you were there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, even though, like I said, you know, physically I wasn't ready at all. You know, I just wasn't. I haven't played basketball in over probably like two years when I stepped out there. That was like my first time playing basketball in two years. So I wasn't ready physically, but it was just, it was so much fun. You know, the guys, great atmosphere. And, uh, I, you know, I put a message up on, on social media to the guys that I know, like, you know, you guys need basketball fun for me. And so 
I just say I thank City of God and, and the TT for bringing you know, bringing that love and, and, and the game back. Home. And you carry that over. You went back down to Uruguay this past this past winter, right? Yeah, because it's one of those places. Like I said, it's one not a big place, and um, why, why not one of the famous places to go? I'll say, where people are like, oh, you know. But I'm like, it's one of those places where I'm comfortable. You know, I have a good, you know, good audience down there. Um, fans love me. The actual city, you know, the cities love me. So it's one of those things where I'm just comfortable. And you played? Was it a tournament setting or was it an actual league down there? What was it? What was the basketball? It's an actual. It's an actual league. Um, you know, obviously two two Americans per team. And, um, you know, so it's, you know, it's just a league. I think it lasts about seven, eight months, but I kind of went towards the end of the season. I played like the last three regular season games and then I played in the playoffs. So I was there for about, about four or five, about four months. Who was the other American you played with? A guy named Shaquille Johnson. He played at, um, uh, Marshall University. Good guy. And then now he's playing. Oh, great guy. You know, great guy. Very talented. He actually led led the league in scoring, so he's one of those um, great you know great players. That he has young young too, so he has a great upside. Did you do any TBT recruiting for him? Is he going to join a team? <laughs> yeah, I think actually, um, you know, pretty much our team is already stocked and filled up. But uh, he's um start. I think he's working on a team down in. Uh, cause he's from Florida, so I think it's him and a bunch of guys from Florida's putting on the team. So, um, you know, the TBT is going to be a, um, a great great term this year. I see a lot of talent coming in this year. What did you think about some of the players that, that you played against last summer? It must have been neat to see some of these names you hadn't seen since you were at Georgetown, huh? Oh, yeah. It was just, it was one of those things where, they, like I said, you know, every, every game was like, wow, I haven't seen this guy in years. And it's just, it's a great thing that brings everybody back together. And, um, I could just only see this tournament getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year. It was a great story. It's already big. Oh, Sorry. I cut you off. Go ahead. No, that, that's not how I was finished. Well, I was just going to say that there was a great story that I think came out after you guys played the Bayhams Army Syracuse team that you were kind of breaking down how to how to defeat that two three zone from your Georgetown days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a true story. Um, because you know I played against the zone, obviously, you know, for three years at Georgetown, so you kind of you know learn a little bit about it. But um, you know, it's obviously you know it's one of those things where I kind of knew what to do, but you know, you know, we came out and played a great game and um and got the win. What did you think of when you left the NBA in 2007? It looks like you had a little gap, and then, and then you started out playing internationally. There, one place more than another, or obviously Uruguay is going to have a special place in your heart. Any places that were more fun than others that you played? Um, I can probably say Puerto Rico, because uh, I did about six seasons in Puerto Rico, and it's one of those places where, you know, it's, it's close to home, it's a short flight, um, my family can come in and out, uh, you know, the phone works the same, the same money. You know, English is pretty much used there. So it's one of those places. It's almost like kind of like being in Miami almost. Yeah. But so it's a great situation. My family comes down here. We're living on the beach. It's sort of like a paid vacation. So I can say one of those parts is like my favorite place to be. Um, one of the things <laughs> that I think most people would be interested in, Michael, in hearing about is what life is like in the NBA. You know, I mean, I think your experience might have been a little different than others. But what is the life like? Do people have a real good grasp of what is really going on? When you're an um, NBA player? No, not, not really. I think a lot of times, I would just say like on game days, I always give you the example of game days where all they see is the two, you know, two and a half hours on TV, but they don't know like in that morning, you you know, you have a shoot around, that's about an hour. Uh, you go back to your hotel, you eat lunch, you take a nap. Um, then you get to the arena at like four o'clock. So your day can start at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning and sometimes you don't get home until midnight, one o'clock in the morning, depending on you know, what time the game starts. Because after the game, 
you ice and you go out to dinner and then it's like, you know, it's a whole day and people don't really understand it. They just see the two hours on TV. They don't realize that you pretty much prepare the whole day and you don't get much rest. What about the, the, the coaching and stuff that goes into that? I mean, is there a lot of uh, uh, opportunity? It doesn't seem like one of the complaints I always hear, for example, between differences between college and NBA is that there's not a ton of practice time in the NBA. You know, there's shoot arounds and stuff. Oh. But you don't get a time to like install a new offensive set or something like that. Is that true? Yeah, once the se- um, yeah, once the season starts, because uh, you know you you're traveling so much and you have so many games, so it's kind of hard for most teams to. Yeah, you you'll have a gap during the season. You might have like a week where you're home, and you see get practice in. But most of the time, you, you're pretty much going to go so much and play so much. So play. I mean, coaches and um, the management staff pretty much want to rest players as much as possible. So it's mainly a lot of paying attention to detail, a lot of film. A lot of walkthroughs, so it's a lot of it's more mental and physical during the season. What was it like being a Georgetown um, a player, having grown up in Washington D.C.? Uh, it was probably the greatest feeling ever, one of the greatest feelings ever, and still to this day, every time I go out somewhere, I go to a grocery store, I go pick up my kids from school, somebody remembers me from Georgetown. So it's one of those things where, you know, I don't think it will ever die down. It's, it's the greatest feeling ever to be. Growing up in this area and being a local legend is from as far as from being from Georgetown. So it's one of those things that I'm, I'm happy about, and I wouldn't change it for the world. Did you end up uh, getting your degree from there? No, actually, I'm still trying to finish up right now. Um, by me traveling overseas, and they don't offer classes online, so it's pretty much tough for me to yeah. get it done being gone so much. But uh, right now that I'm home working and I'm trying to, you know, finish it up. What's your, what was your, uh, is your major? What are you trying to finish up with? My major is sociology. And do you have an interest in getting into a particular field? Obviously, having studied that? Actually, you no, know, I kind of found my niche uh, right now is, I'm um, still playing basketball, obviously, but I think my niche right now is just trying to change lives. Uh, I think this one is something that really fulfills me and the reaction that I get everywhere I speak. I think this is, you know, what I'm called to do. So I'm happy about it. That's great. And your wife's happy with that too? Oh, she's very happy. She's a great, my wife is a great support system for me. Um, she's on me harder than most people think, but, uh, she's always on me, making sure I do the right things, critiquing, you know, my speeches, you know, critiquing the way I handle business. So she's a, a great support system. What kind of business are you in besides playing basketball? Do you have like investments and stuff going on? Things you're doing? Um, no, pretty mainly, but right now, this is it. Just, just speaking in basketball. Yeah. And, then, and, and uh, that's, that's pretty much it. And then what about coaching? Do you have any interest in getting involved with that? I would think that from a psychological perspective, you'd be, you'd be in good shape to handle a lot of different yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's funny. A lot, a lot of people ask me to do it, but I'm not really sure if I have the, uh, the patience for it. <laughs> really? You know, coaching takes a lot of patience. And um, in, in my life, people say, oh, you, ha-, you know, that I had great, you know, footwork and postwork playing basketball back in the past. And um, I think I try to teach some kids sometimes moves, and I couldn't do it. And I found that weird. I was like, wow, I, could, I had all these moves, but when I tried to teach it, I couldn't translate it. And I just feel like, you know, coaching is a gift, and I don't think I'm that gifted to do it. Did somebody teach you <laughs> how to do being that? honest. Ashley knows everything I do is natural. Like, I could do a move and probably forget what I did. So everything pretty much was just natural. And so, um, I, that's why I think it's probably as hard for me to teach it. So, like, a guy on the post, you know, like Hakeem Olajuwon or Kevin McHale, where they clearly have practiced those moves a million times, that's not what you were doing. You were actually doing a lot of that stuff just naturally? Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, of course I practice some of it, you know, some certain, like, if I'm in practice, I might do a move, or I might, I might have about five or six moves that I do, but Hakeem Olajuwon and Kevin McHale, they probably, I'm sure they practice it, but most of that is just naturally God's gifts, what they have. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, because you think about how many people that work, you know, Hakeem Olajuwon works out, and you have yet to see anybody, you know, play just like him. You know, he, he can teach a move, but nobody would have what he has. So he works out so many NBA players now. How many NBA players you see play like him? Yeah. It's just not going to happen. He's just a naturally gifted guy. Well, I mean, that's one thing I'm really curious about, and you're a good guy to ask having competed at that level, is that you never see people that replicate moves that seem to be teachable. You know, like the one example I always think of is the skyhook from Kareem. Like, why? how come nobody has ever been able to replicate that? It was the most deadly shot maybe in the history of basketball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was one of those people that, you know, when I first got to college, they tried to teach it to me or try to get me to do it, and it was it's hard. You know, the skyhook is probably so hard. I think certain NBA players have certain patented moves that probably nobody else can do but them. And I think that's the great thing and the great thing about the NBA and the talent-wise. You, at the highest level, you have something that you can do that not many people can do, like the stuff that Steph Curry does. Not many people can do what he does, or you probably won't ever see that again. So it's just, you know, it's hard to say. So do you think a lot of that stuff is just God-given talent versus something that somebody has worked and worked and worked to perfect over time? Um, I think with, with Steph Curry, is definitely God-given talent. But, you know, Steph Curry, from what I see, is one of the hardest workers there is. I mean, stuff that he does, he works on his craft, but he also is talented. You know, and, you know, Kevin Durant has this, this phrase that I always see, and it's really true. He's like, you know, hard work beats talent every day. And Kevin Durant is a talented guy, but he works very hard. So I think the hard work alone with the talent just goes a long way with most players. When you were coming up, was that the sort of thing that you understood? In terms of in terms of um, the hard work, beaten talent, or how do you feel that that applied to you growing up? Uh, I think for sure for me, um, in high school and going into college, uh, coming out of high school, I wasn't a highly ranked player. I wasn't a McDonald's All American, so I had to work hard. Going to Georgetown, nobody gave me any odds of even playing. They said, "Oh, you just got a scholarship off luck. You're not going to even see the floor." And I went there and I worked, you know, worked my butt off. The summer going into my freshman year, and I ended up winning a starting job. You know, over a guy that, you know, over a few players that was, you know, NBA prospects. So but I just worked, I just worked hard. So it's one of those things that I had to work hard. But, you know, that all went out the window when, you know, I lost my father and I just lost that drive that I used to have. And, but I definitely understand what it takes. Did you, um, have you ever read any of the recent reporting on Tiger Woods at all? I have no clue. No, uh, well, I don't they, know what's going there's on. A, there's been a lot of reports lately about sort of what caused him to go from being this track of, all-time greatest golfer to kind of just falling off, you know? And they yeah. talk, it's, the only reason I bring it up, Michael, is that it's kind of a similar similar story to you, is that when his dad died, a lot of that internal motivation that he had seemed to have dissipated, you know? At least that's the theory that people have. Do you think that that, mm -hmm. do you, aside from the depression issue, do you think that that affected you motivationally? Um, oh, yeah, for basketball? sure. I, I, can, I, I can definitely agree with that. That definitely... You know, you had that, that person. It's definitely not a great excuse to use or it's not a pity party, but it's sometimes it's human nature happening when you have somebody that influences you so much to do something and is your influence and that they're gone and not in your ear. So sometimes it is, it is tough. It is tough to have that, that drive. Cause even at times when I was in college and I'll be slipping up, 